Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 16 of the Print Design Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins, and thanks so much for being here today. Before I introduce today's guest, I wanted to let you know that if you are interested in increasing the revenue of your freelance design business or your your side hustle, whatever you got, print design, there's a way to do that with print design, the business of print design. Head over to printdesignacademy.com and I've got this free uh, guide, we'll call it a free guide that t- gives you the top three ways to increase the revenue of your freelance side hustle, your freelance business with print design, the business of print design. Check out printdesignacademy.com for that. Now today's guests. Notice I pluralized that guests. I met these gentlemen first on the Quickie podcast way back in episode 71. Just for reference, I'm at uh, 220-ish on the Quickie now. So I've known these guys for a while. I followed their work for a while. And it's always exciting to see what they're working on and the spin they're putting on it. Plus, they've got like a little bit of startup, uh, business startup history in their uh, in their career. They talk a little bit about that in this episode. But if you want to hear that in depth, head over to number 71 of the Quickie Podcast. Today's guest is Todd and Lucian from Burger and Fair. And the talent these guys have is just intense. Um, the way that they think about things and they analyze things and the way their creative minds work to create these beautiful brands and, and works of art, just incredible things that they're doing. Um, so it was such an exciting opportunity to get to talk to them again, especially about print because they've done some wicked print stuff. And uh, specifically in this episode, we do a deep dive on the magazine projects that they created for their design startup, LO. That was uh, about two or three years ago that they created these. And, uh, and I loved it. I loved the details they shared with us, how in-depth this magazine was. And man, just what an awesome project that they brought and they shared with us. There's also some print wins, some print fails in there. Just an amazing episode. I love this interview. I know you're going to love it. So let's stop listening to me talk and let's let the champs take it away. Ladies and gentlemen, Todd and Lucian from Burger and Fair. Hit the intro. Welcome to the Print Design Podcast, the show where we talk about all things print and packaging. We go behind the scenes with designers and talk about the print projects they designed that really rocked their world. From file prep to holding the finished product in their hand and all the key decisions in between. So let's talk ink on paper. Todd and Lucian, welcome to the Print Design Podcast. How are you both? Well, Dave, thank you for having us. Awesome. Great to hear. It's been a good minute since we've last chatted, having you back on the Quickie Podcast, like just over a year ago from this point. Yeah, it's cool to be back, man. 
So I figure we kick this off by just you guys just tell the listeners about yourself. Just give us a little context on who you are and what you got cooking. Lucian, why don't you kick it off? Yeah, so we're Burger and Fair, uh, currently a three-person design studio based in Boulder, Colorado. Our focus is identity design, but we inevitably end up printing lots of things for clients, lots of things for ourselves, and then we also have a fine art practice, and so we do lots of printing in the art realm as well. Nice. Well done. So Lucian, I'm going to stick with you for this next question here. What is your earliest memory of print or packaging? Maybe it's something from your childhood or your teens. What's your earliest memory? I think Tom and I actually share this one, and that's shoeboxes. Both both are currently sneakerheads and grew up sneakerheads. And I think, you know, specifically orange Nike shoeboxes. And the tissue paper, the paper shoved inside the sneakers, the whole experience. Whole experience. For me, like, I, I remember the smell. As soon as you yep. open the box, just that, like, the new shoe smell. That's still my favorite, that's still my favorite part of copping a new pair of sneakers. Yeah, it's, it's really you interesting. Used to have to, you used to have to lace new shoes, right? That seems to have gone away. I always remember the lacing, like you open it and get the laces and then lace the shoes. Yeah, what a, what a massive novelty, pre-laced shoes. Yeah, we're spoiled. <laughs> Think of the time we've saved. <laughs> Todd, over to you, man. What's your earliest memory of printer packaging? Is it the same or you got something else? Yeah, I mean, it's like the the memory that stimulates the most senses is just the nike unboxing i mean i've been a nike head at least as far back as i can remember roughly around five for whatever reason my mom just you know bought me nikes uh so that's always stuck so just the smell of a fresh pair of kicks and then i mean i've got some strong memories around like shrink wrap skateboard wheels fishing lures uh you know, it was, it was really just like opening the things I was most into as a little kid. And, and so that tended to be like things related to sneakers, skateboards, or fishing. So it's really that unboxing, unpackaging experience that you really remember. Yeah, as well as like the branding, right? Like there's some hilariously uh, <laughs> odd packaging in the like fishing lure industry, particularly... <laughs> Going back to the like, you know, late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. That's super cool, like really cool blister packs, cool graphics. It's sort of like it had its own vibe, kind of like skate, but like more outdoorsy and less mainstream cool. Um, but yeah, fishing wheel or, or uh, skateboard wheels is another, another strong one. But I would, you know, it was just the unboxing experience around those things that really inspired me. That's cool. So, Todd, I'm going to just sort of stay in your corner with this. What about recently? Have you had any recent interactions with anything print or packaging that you really enjoyed? You know, Lucian, I think, has more specific answers as it relates to brands and, and products. But it's funny, thinking about this now, like, it's less about 
the package for me and more about the unboxing experience. So, like, I'm most excited when stuff we make shows up. It may not be packaged beautifully in some extraordinary, you know, print capacity. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's just the, the whole experience of the reveal. Uh, most recently, we've been getting a lot of samples for uh, some really trick signage we're doing. And Lucian, that's another project we didn't even think to know that's, that's super relevant. Um, for some 3D dimensional printed uh, signage on acrylic for uh, the University of Colorado's Atlas Institute. So there's been all sorts of samples coming to my house. So I've just been kind of psyched to open each one and assess each sample. But I haven't had, you know, a super recent unboxing slash print packaging experience that's blown my mind with the exception of like, you know, I'm still ordering Nikes occasionally. So those are the things <laughs> that's that's most and it's kind of more fun. I've got a little kid. So when my kids Nike show up and he gets to have that same experience, like vicariously, that just kind of takes me back to my childhood and it's, it's super exciting. So do you find it when he's opening the package and looking at the shoes, you're like, Hey, but, but look at the box. Like, through the box these things came in yeah i mean you know i'm like slow down buddy and like enjoy the whole experience but less so i'm more enamored by like how tech and dope the shoes are today but mm-hmm. they still pretty much smell the same you know fortunately we're using you know nike's using newer materials there's there's less toxic materials involved and everything's a little bit more environmentally friendly to a large degree but not to a complete degree and so that's nice. Things smell a little different, but largely the same. Right on. Lucian, what about yourself? Well, more on the shoe boxes. We, you know, we keep all the shoe boxes and in my house less as a collector thing. We actually use them as organizers. So my all my dressers and socks and underwear are all organized into old Nike boxes. Nice. So I still interact with you know, cutting the tops off these boxes and dealing with them every day for everything in our house. That's awesome. So every time you get more socks, you just, it's a reason you have to buy more shoes. Well, I need another box to store these. Exactly. Awesome. So beyond that, we had a, we were having a conversation with the potential client this week, actually about cut, you know, how to capture a custom bespoke, product and a packaging experience. And while it's not that recent, sort of made Todd and I remember we, we have a Vitzo packaging or a, excuse me, shelving system in our studio. And that whole process, you can't just order the parts, at least you kind of, you have to work with them, send them your dimensions and sort of your objectives. And they do co-design what that system is going to be and then ship it to you. And part of the beauty of that system is the ease of install. And there's one critical piece that they provide, and that's a level. But not only a level, it's a level with two protrusions on the end. And so by putting that on the wall, the tracks of the shelves fit perfectly in there. So you get this level, and then you use that to actually install your shelving. And through that whole process, you know, you're... You're recreating the layout that you worked on with them. It was just 
think, and we still use that level almost every week at the studio. And it was so, a Vitso so, system? Yeah, designed by Dieter Rams, the 606 shelving system. That's cool. Yeah, it was designed in 1960. It's still almost entirely spec for the original design. The packaging is lovely, but super minimal, and it's really just all about the reveal when the product comes out. Yeah, that reveal is super important. <laughs> yeah, and that, that system comes shipped with a handwritten note by the person that packages it and preps it. It's a really, just on a nice piece of little little note card, letterpress, the Bitsu logo, uh, you know, kind of a personal note to thank you and just set you on the right path to get your shelving installed. It's a pretty cool touch. That's cool. That is a really big part of the experience, that personal touch. Yeah, we're big fans of the handwritten note, so we're always making new letterhead and new collateral for ourselves in the studio so we can... Uh, send people nice little nuggets speaking of which we we need to drop something in the mail for you hey if it's a handwritten note i'm I'm excited about that so what do you guys think makes print so special to designers you know i've talked to you know over 200 designers between the quickie podcast and what i've got going over here and all of them agree that you know print design they value print. They value a really nice, well-done magazine. They value these things. Why do you think that is? What makes it so special to designers? I, I know part of what makes it special to us, and one is the like the potential for permanence, right? Like so much graphic design today is largely ephemeral. Just digital things fly out into the ether and and disappear. Mm-hmm. And so we're printing we're always pushing our clients and when we're printing for ourselves, we're always seeking to make things that are going to last. And so I think this notion of making lasting things is, is exciting and lasting things that are tangible that you can touch and feel and, and smell. And, and similarly, there's just a rich history around printing that I think you know, you got a lot of young designers today, even more experienced designers today. It's 2020, and we're working in this hyper, hyper fast, super dynamic environment, largely mm-hmm. digital. And so, when we get a chance to kind of look back a couple thousand years, you know, and make some woodblock prints, or do some screen prints, or do any sort of, you know, offset transfer process, it just it feels good and it it takes us back in time in a in a meaningful way and it puts all of the larger graphic design practice in a new context i think that's that's a big part of what's inspiring for us and then you know same thing you know we're on a keyboard clicking a mouse most of the day but we're both pretty hands-on guys so you know making screen prints making woodblock prints working in a lithographic context um, anytime we get to print, it just, it feels good. It takes you out of the, the rigmarole of, uh, working in this predominantly digital ecosystem that we now live in. It almost makes it feel more real. Yeah. I mean, it is more real in some ways cause it's real for people into the future, right? Like, I mean, websites, apps, like there's a, there's a small handful of websites, apps, and digital things we've designed over the last almost 25 years now that are 
that still exists, right? Like we have a lot of identities that have stuck around and the, the predominant reason our practice is centered around identity is that identity is historically has been one of the most lasting components of graphic design. Mm-hmm. If that being said, we're certainly designing a lot more dynamic, flexible identities that morph and bend and adapt and change. And some are even intended to be to be replaced on, on shorter cycles, right? But with print, uh, if it's done well, this shit sticks around. Lucian, where are you at with this? What makes print so sexy? Yeah, I mean, what Todd is saying, I think it's we have a lot of work that ends up just either sitting on your hard drive or it gets emailed around, but you actually print something. I think it's also the levity of the whole process now, the costs associated to it, the quantities. I think I can remember early on the first jobs of actually this is going to print and it just ups the whole game of, did you do this perfectly? (laughs) You're going to make that phone call or click that button and now hundreds of thousands of dollars is going to be spent. And usually someone else's money on your client's behalf, right? So I think I think that also, you know, as early designers, that experience is really memorable because it's the first time that things get not only really real in terms of something that's gonna be made, but real in terms of your responsibility as a designer on behalf of your client and also getting you out of your process of just digital now you actually get to pick the paper you have to hopefully go somewhere in person and look at the thing before it gets done Mm -hmm. just you know brings about a whole nother level of process that yeah you don't get there's a layer of risk that's that's involved that i think ups the ante coupled with the knowledge required makes it more and more exciting as you grow in experience right because now we can conceive some pretty crazy shit and we know how to do it. You know, looking back to when we started printing, we both started as graphic designers in a largely uh, digital realm doing brand stuff, but a lot of web and internet related work. So we we backed into print uh, as part of the design curriculum we created for ourselves. And then uh, at some point just decided it was important to us to be pretty expert at print so we could realize man busy day on the mountain <laughs> so, we could, <laughs> so we could realize a lot of our ideas and our work in a more lasting way because we were aware of the ephemerality of the internet pretty early and then something that i didn't mention earlier is that all print projects at least all the print projects in our studio by and large come with some degree of collaboration mm-hmm. and so we have great relationships with screen printers, lithographers, offset printers, flexo printers, uh, letterpress printers, and those relationships are near and dear to us. And I mean, we've worked with all those people many times over, and like some of them we've been working with for 20 years. So there's a potential to build lasting, rich relationships. And because Rick, print, excuse me, because print is complex uh, and we're fairly experienced, our partners really like working with us because, you know, we're just pretty laid back about the whole thing, given how much risk and cost and and, uh, 
sort of purposeful intention is required at the same time there's yeah this heightened level of responsibility that lucian mentioned so getting to build those relationships around technology and processes and then and then really taking advantage of them to collaborate and and take our ideas and and maximize them bring them to life in the best capacity is we lean on our partners for that often even though we're quite competent and have have really strong ideas so it's it's great to have those relationships and to enter into those collaborative sorts of projects so two things just came to me while you both were giving your answers here one is is something that you had said todd you know, once you understand the process and and what goes into it you know you can create some really cool things and that's so true because when you realize how the letterpress operation and the plate making and how it's all going to come together, you can sort of hack that to create some pretty wild things. Yeah. Like with letterpress, right? Like plates are expensive. So if you want to make a bunch of collateral, you've got to figure out how to reuse plates and, and reorient things on different sheet sizes. And, and depending upon the sheet sizes you're buying for a different job, like we'll often buy, a big sheet for a project, get it cut down, use part of it for the project and the rest of it for prints. Mm -hmm. So we're always thinking about paper costs, paper sizes, what we can do with the leftover paper. Maybe we're actually going to buy a larger sheet because we have another project that we want to come out of that sheet that we're going to have the printer cut for us first. Um, you know, just, just recently, anecdotal story, we had a, uh, rather large shipment of screen printing paper show up it it uh, showed up damaged we shipped it back to the paper supplier before right when covid was hitting and they were like yeah we'll ship you some new paper sorry about that and they did and then somehow the paper got returned to us the the paper we shipped back to them got returned to us and they were like oh don't worry about it keep it so we called one of our family-owned offset printers because we were doing another job with them and I was like hey can I run by in the morning and can you guys chop this paper down into a couple different sizes because we're going to make some prints out of it so um it's cool to be able to think like that and 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 reuse and recycle and and take advantage of some of the constraints inherent to print but you're right there's there's a there's a lot to know and you can really hack the quote-unquote larger system when you've uh, got some experience hundred percent. And, and this, the other thing that really came to me is the feeling that you were describing, um, Lucian, I think you said this where, you know, there's a bit of risk involved and you kind of feel that. And that brings up this sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, the authenticity of, of that you're creating something tangible, something real. And I just letterpress printed something for print design Academy yesterday. I was at the letterpress printers sort of documenting the process and, you know, I felt myself there being like looking over the, you know, for a press check about to sign the sheet. And I'm like reading like, God, what if I find a typo right now? Like, what, what if that happens? Like, and that sort of adds to the whole experience of the process. Yeah, exactly. And I think the first time, I think there's also something about seeing the equipment and the scale of the operation, particularly when you're getting into, you know, offset or anything in these larger shops yeah anything thermal or flexo or uv like you're getting into some big equipment mm -hmm. so i think just seeing yeah what's gonna get put to work sort of on your behalf to create this thing that 
you just made sitting on a computer clicking away. Yeah, and anyone can send files off to printers nowadays, but when you understand, you know, all these printing processes, you can not just save money, but you can make better better printed products, better, you know, produce better work. For sure, with less questions and less confusing, because the amount of files that I see and receive um, from designers, you can tell where the experience and knowledge level at is in print. You know, I, I still get tons of files in RGB. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes that's an accident, but more often than not nowadays, like a kid that just grew up doing digital graphic design is like, what? CMYK? I don't, I don't get it. You know, why isn't this file fine? Yeah. I had one last week where I sent out a dial line for a packaging project and um, the quotes, I use air quotes here. You can't see it, but I'm using air quotes. Um, the designer came back and said, how do I import this into Canva? Yeah, right. <laughs> I very politely just said, I, I don't think that's going to work. I highly recommend you find a <laughs> graphic designer in your area using the Adobe suite with experience and packaging. Yeah. Yeah. Just, um, yeah. So Lucian, I want to take you back in time a little bit down memory lane here. I want to hear about the first print project you were ever a part of the first one you ever produced. I think I, I can almost remember like the environment more than what the actual client was. I mean, it's with Todd. Todd and I have been working together for um, coming up on over 18 years now. And I started with him. I was pretty young. Didn't have a driver's license. But I, I remember sort of like sort of describing the first time where I was the one that was going to submit this project to the printer. It was probably just business cards. Probably wasn't anything too major or serious, but it felt momentous. That <laughs> and and frankly terrifying. Yeah. But I can't remember what the actual client project was. But I'm pretty sure I remember where I was standing in the studio. I remember how our studio was oriented at that time, and all all of the stuff around it. The feels and the and the visuals are still there. Just the project isn't. Yeah, you know, a lot of clients over the years, so it's hard to keep them straight. For sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, I can't remember, like, Lucian's earliest print projects, but I'm sure the conversation was, by and large, like, hey, man, we've been over this a few times. Don't fuck this up. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the best lines. I think it's the most helpful, constructive line ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that was obviously after thorough review and discussion, right? 100%. Um, but we still, we still sort of, that's kind of the line we throw out to one another just by default. Anytime anyone's like, okay, man, this is going to print. We're sending it off. It's like, <laughs> okay, but let's not fuck this up, you know? Uh, because there's just, there's just a lot of room. There's a lot of room for air, for air. And, you know, we'll get into some of our blunders and mistakes. And so now we're like, super thorough with print stuff and we'll mm -hmm. drive out to the shop late at night or early in the morning like we just we did a little print job a week ago and you know low dollar digital but decent paper uh quick turn and and i wanted to run out to the print shop anyways to just see the finish on the paper and make sure the cuts were right and um just to ensure that the client was was going to get the caliber product that we intended them to have, you know. So, so we're pretty methodical nowadays with with that stuff. Uh, 
that comes after a great many uh, errors and and little little mistakes, if you will. Definitely. Well, I'm one question away from getting into that kind of stuff. But first, Todd, I want to check in with you. Do you have a different project or a project that you remember was the first print project you were a part of? Yeah, I mean, I I was kind of fascinated by screen printing. I remember in junior high, my next door neighbor had like, uh, I think it might have been an early Lucian. What's that Japanese little setup we had at one for a while? The Goko? Yeah, the print Goko. The print Goko. I think that was the first thing I saw his mom making, my next door neighbor's mom making labels for something and thought it was really cool. So, and explaining to me that it was screen printing. I didn't know much about it before then. So freshman year of high school, I uh, had the opportunity to take a screen printing class. We had like a technical printing lab connected to the like, it was like integrated with the architectural program Mm -hmm. at high school, which was pretty multidisciplinary. So yeah, I got access to that and, and started printing and the, the first project was a whole bunch of just Jimi Hendrix t-shirts. So just drawing abstract portraits of Jimi Hendrix and making some teas. And that that kind of got parlayed into some hard slash classic rock uh, t-shirts that I kind of made all throughout high school. And uh, that was really sort of the bedrock of my, of my printing process, just making art you know, creating film, burning films to screens, and so understanding the positive-negative process. And then I just got... The the part of the print process that I like the most is just the transfer, the idea of, like, one image being transferred to another medium uh, via this, this ink medium in the middle, and now you have this whole new textural, contextual experience. So that, that sort of mini-meta loop of of taking an uh, image from one thing, transferring it to another, and the, the final output doesn't look like either, right? The, the context is totally changed once the image is transferred to, to a sheet or to any sort of material. Um, even more so, like, we've been screen printing on mirrors, on wood. Uh, we print on lots of different materials. So there's, like, this magic that happens when that image gets transferred that's, that's really rewarding. That's kind of the thing that hooked me early. So your first print jobs was screening and slang and Hendrix shirts. Yeah, pretty much. And then there was some Zeppelin stuff in there, some Sabbath. Uh, later in high school, I was making all sorts of Grateful Dead t-shirts and selling them at shows. Um, and then there was a lot of just like skate graphics, like screen printing some stickers early, learning how to die cut, shit like that. And that was all done in high school just because I was fortunate we had a pretty cool lab to print and cut and prepare. Well, gentlemen, let's get to some of the painful stories. How about that? Perfect. Have you guys ever been part of a print project that did not turn out as you hoped, didn't go well, went sideways? Uh, I want to hear about it. Oh, tell me the story. Yeah, Lucian, do you want to sort of sadly go down the Vignelli Road? Yeah, this one this one hurts to talk about for us. Probably because it was not it was on it was a self initiated project, not on behalf of a client. Uh, we were very fortunate to be in touch with and become friends with Massimo Vanelli for his passing. And when he did pass away, we created these ten edition of ten individual posters um, sort of commemorate him. So we took 10 of his favorite typefaces, 10 of his 
uh, what do they call it, Todd? They're uh, Massimoisms, like fam- awesome. most famous recognizable quotes. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. And then we recontextualize as Unigrid um, to lay all these things out on, and these are all going to be screen prints. Hey, Dave, as an aside, we'll send you one of the the Unigrid prints. Uh, oh, cool, man. Yeah, some some of these panned out, but I'll let Lucian keep going. <laughs> yeah, so we sent the files. We got a digital proof. We did not. There's lots of learnings from this, and frankly, it's still a bit of a mystery about how this all went wrong. But we didn't do uh, any sort of press check during the on press, and so we get all these posters back. It's quite these a few. Are, these are big posters, Dave. Twenty-four by thirty-six on Whoa. expensive. On expensive paper and with a with a, a screen printer that we've worked with a lot and so i i think we got lazy and thought we could pull this one off because it seems so simple without typically we're there and we're at least catching the prints if not doing a lot of the proofing and sometimes pulling mm-hmm. but in, in this case we thought we could just float it all without being there for a press check but yeah lucian carry on you're, just before you get going back on that, Lucian, it's so funny you say that, Todd, how you know, you approached it thinking that this is going to be simple and straightforward. In my print career, the projects that have given me the most grief and have been the most challenging are blank boxes. Hmm. Like it's the st- stuff that is seemingly so simple and easy to pull off that always surprises you, I find. Yeah, I mean, we just, we recently did a super simple art project. We've been getting some commissions for a body of work we do on mirrors and we were screen printing real simple forms on mirrors, but we had to have a jig to elevate, you know, to frame the mirrors because the mirrors sit up off the vacuum table Mm -hmm. an eighth quarter of an inch, depending upon the mirror. And then we're using a special ink to adhere in a, in a pretty archival fashion to the mirror, but the ink's pretty runny so it runs through the screen uh, in ways that you wouldn't expect every time the squeegee comes across the screen, blah, 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 blah. But the images were so simple, man, and it took us so freaking long to get them dialed, and we messed up so many. And so when you're printing, you know, that's expensive. We're printing on, like, a $40 mirror. Uh-huh. That's a cheap one, right? And so when you mess up 15 or 20 of those, uh, it's a bummer. Yeah. But yeah, real real simple images. Simple stuff is hard hard to pull off really well in, as far as it relates to both art and, and graphic design. And a lot of our print projects sort of blur that. A lot of our minimal print projects blur that line between art and graphic design. And so we, we know now the simpler it is, the harder it's going to be. Uh, we sort of knew that back when we did this project, but not to the same extent we do today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to get to the the sad end, we get all these posters back to our studio, and we're starting to unbox them, and somehow the typefaces are correct, but the kerning is totally fucked on some of them. (laughs) Doesn't even make sense. We to this day we don't understand. We think the files are outlined. We don't, something just went wrong somewhere along the line on the majority of them. A few of, and that, that's what also said it makes sense. About four of them with typography were totally fine. The Unigrid, which had no typography, came out great. 
But the others were just embarrassingly, it looks like seriously amateur design because the kerning is just so bad. And so keep in mind, we're doing a body of work you know, inspired by and kind of on behalf of and to commemorate Massimo Vignelli, and we're pretty we're pretty adept at kerning. So we'd spent quite a bit of time kerning. You know, these are one sentence Massimoisms, one sentence quotes, and we had everything really dialed. We got a digital proof of what was going to be the negatives, and it was money. Everything was great. We molded over. And then the screens got burned and, you know, at a minimum, it, you know, one one lesson here is like, if you're going to proof a screen remotely, make sure you see the screen. If you're going to proof a negative for a screen or a negative for anything remotely, make sure you see the plate or the screen or the, the final transfer mechanism before you kick the project off, right? Because we were like, oh, the, the PDFs that they're going to burn the screens from look great. Our buddy's burning the screens, like he gets it right every time. Like, what do we have to worry about? Right. And so somehow all the letter spacing and, and it got blown out in ways that make no sense to us. So we like spent a lot of time mulling over it. And now it was 10, it's a series edition of 10 prints, 10, it's 10 unique designs, an edition of 10 of each print. So a hundred prints. And I think there's three to five artist proofs of each. So, you know, out of 150 plus ish proof, 150 ish prints, yeah, like Lucian said, four or five came out right, and the ones that got wrecked, I mean, they're, they're almost cool in a bad way. Like, if you know our work and you know Massimo's work, and you're like, well, here's what some Massimo inspired work looks like when it gets all effed up, uh, but not, not really, you know? Um, so, and it's sad because the Vignelli Museum was going to take the edition and show it. And then we finished the edition. The whole edition was blown out. We're like, we can't send you these. We need to reprint them. And at that point in time, we'd sunk a bunch of money into it. We were pretty frustrated and we kind of had to get back to work. So those prints are just sitting um, unphotographed. Like neither one of us even has the revised Unigrid, which, which again, will get you one. It's a dope print. Um, and the ones that, the ones that came out okay, we've never displayed or done anything. The intent was to see the whole series, you know, 10 in a row. So yet to be seen if we'll revisit and fix those, but I, I have a hunch that one day we probably will. So at this point you have not reprinted the ones that got just messed up somehow. Nope. There's four boxes of Mossimo prints sitting in the design studio um that we've just been moving around for you know since Massimo's since a few months after Massimo's death we haven't returned to it the other thing is we have a hard time going back and doing anything twice we're always kind of moving forward making new shit so we have some historical work in our on the art side of our practice that that we revisit and sometimes recontextualize but this one was like a lot of energy and effort and just we've got to find a way to fire it back up and finish them off. Cause they're, they feel semi significant, at least to us. Uh, and they're good prints. And I, I'd love to have the whole series of 10. I don't have a home big enough to display all in a row or in some sort of grid, but they'd be lovely together. And, 
you know the the design is nice it's very massimo inspired but the the statements and the thinking that went into these these sayings these these quotes of his these things he said like if you're a graphic designer or just a generally thoughtful person that's interested in design they're they're pretty rich and and powerful and um timeless Man, I'm like going through all of the the emotions here with you, like the, the of opening the boxes and you know first off, cutting them open with this excitement, and then seeing them and immediately going, what? Yeah, and the and the print shops thirty minutes away. I mean, the whole thing is just so silly that we just weren't there for for the press check. But I I loosely recollect having a lot of shit going on at the time and just being excited that it was going to happen. And we thought it was dialed and, you know, we just got a little lazy there at the end and, uh, no one caught it, including mm-hmm. us. So yeah, it was a bummer. A lot, lot of little lessons learned in that one. Definitely. Well, it sounds like a really exciting project. I'm excited to see, um, you know, some of those posters and yeah, I definitely encourage you to pick that project back up. Cause I think that's one that definitely needs to see the light of day. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, we'll we'll share that stuff with you after the after our chat. Yeah, you've sat with the PTSD for long enough. You can move on. Yeah, we've got a lot of you know print trauma that's buried deep. That's 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 one uh, that's one piece of it. Nice. Okay, guys, I want to shift gears here, and I want to get into I want to get into a deep dive. I want to hear about a project that you guys were a part of that you're proud and excited to share. Um, and let's dive deep in it. Let's talk budgets, papers, you know, how the project came to be, how these decisions were made, all that kind of stuff. Sounds good. So what you got? The project we picked, well, we picked three, but we'll focus on one. And I think it's interesting that all three that we picked are all mostly self-initiated projects. But another piece of Todd and I's history is we created a startup that was called Ello. It was a platform for other designers and artists to publish their work and be seen and create community. And we actually took five years off of our studio practice to pursue that full time. The last three plus years of that, Todd was the CEO and I was leading the product. And we're in an interesting place because throughout our career, we've always tried to balance art and design, creating our own art. And that's the only time where we've made zero art on our own. We were just so over our heads with stuff to do. It was kind of unreal. And it was also this interesting situation where we're creating a place online for people to share their work, and we wanted to give them that same sensation that we've been talking about, about making something actually real in the world. So we started, we ended up making three different publications, but the first was called Not For Print. And it's funny, going back to your uh, comment earlier about RGB, we we took that full on because we were having people submit work to a website yep. and we were going to print it. And a lot of that work was never made to be printed. You know, some of it was drawn on iPads and all kinds of just wild stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's called not for print. We got through two different issues 
Uh, each issue had a theme, and people would use Ello as a platform to submit. And then we had guest curators help with the process. I believe we published over 30 artists in each issue. And it was really significant because for a lot of those people, they'd never had their work published or even printed anywhere. They've only been you know, illustrating on a computer. I think it was 50 artists. Might have been 50 because then we did, so then we did an additional publication that was a collaboration with Dribble, where it was, you know, half of their community, half of our community, mm-hmm. all make good. And yeah, I think we doubled for that. So that one must have been 100. Yeah. And to everyone got a page instead of a spread. So we, we doubled that. And then to Lucian's point, Dave, a lot of these folks didn't know how to prepare prepare their files for print yeah they didn't, like to your point earlier they didn't like what i have to put this in cmyk and i have to like add bleeds and blah 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 so it was a labor of love because we spent a lot of time talking to a lot of super talented particularly young designers that just uh hadn't really printed anything for real yet and i can just imagine the work going through that because they're uploading these things in rgb they've got the colors dialed and where they want them to be for rgb <laughs> But when you convert to CMYK, like those colors all don't always translate properly. Yeah, or like someone not realizing that like we were giving them a full page spread, but like that means their image was going to get cropped to some degree based on the proportion of the magazine. So they're like, oh, my image doesn't look right. It's like, well, we can move it up. We can move it to the side. We can move it down. But like something's getting cut off here, you know, stuff right. like that. Man, and having to go through that with 50 designers, like, sounds crazy, man. Yeah, yeah. But it, and it was. All but it over was the world. That's nuts. Right, Glo- globally, too. So sometimes there was language issues. Uh, yeah, you know, that was, a, that was a labor of love. And I think that to jump ahead before we get into the details, the, one of the coolest things that's come out of that is a lot of these artists that we discovered via LO, other people discovered via LO, and then we put into print and we helped them do some other promotional things, which was, you know, a big driver of that, of the LO concept was to promote art and artists and get people more opportunities. And a lot of these folks have gone on, like now they're big deals five years later. Mm -hmm. Hadn't had anything in print or, or virtually published nothing pre-LO. So it's one of the like LO, the vestiges of LO that we're most proud of. Let's go. So what was the what was the budget for this thing? You know, there there was no budget other than okay, we're like this is gonna be a loss leader, but it's good for the business and it's good for the it's good for the business and that it's good for the brand. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think I think and this is we're going back like three years since the last one now, Lucian, roughly. Um I think not for print. I want to say we got it down to around 13, 12 or 13 bucks an issue. Um, and we were making roughly 500. So that was like, you know, in the realm of five and a half to 6K mm-hmm. to produce that. And we printed those with Hemlock up in Canada, you know, can't, one of Canada's most environmentally friendly printers. And, mm-hmm those folks are are super good um and super talented so we 
there were no press checks. There was just lots of proofs and, and paper samples sent back and forth. Um, and they were really accommodating because they were down for the concept and the idea, too. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a semi-constrained budget, but we were also looking to produce a lasting uh, a lasting work. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up paper samples there because um, how, how did you guys decide on a paper? What went into that process? It was a combination of you know, characteristics that we liked plus budget, plus um, environmental responsibility. So we ended up with uh, Link's opaque cover and Link's opaque text. We did 120 pound for the covers and 80 pound for the text. Mm -hmm. They they sent over a bunch of samples of not only just straight paper samples, but other publications they had made and the different, using these different papers we were trying to assess it in terms of, you know, the finish, the final sheen of the paper with images. And we had a spectrum of, we were printing photographs, we were printing black and white illustrations and sort of everything in between. So we, we knew we had to have something pretty versatile, not glossy, um, but also, you know, running the numbers cause we already knew probably weren't going to make a lot of money on this. We had to be somewhat financially responsible. <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah. But we wanted an art for an artful lasting, like textural experience with the, with the paper too. Um, so we were thinking about how it took the ink, like Lucian said, across all these, mostly digital output formats, but, um, you know, from, yeah, black and white photos, color photos, vector art, images of sculpture, uh, some real wild shit in RGB that, you know, was going to get slightly degraded when converted to CMYK. So we had to figure out how to maintain color integrity. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was largely focusing on sheets that would support all those criteria. And at the end of the day, just feel good. Mm-hmm. So you went with so you went with the links. You got this printed magazine. And, and I know we used the links on underscore. I'm not sure that we used the links on uh, not for print, but maybe I'm wrong. I think we did. I think we stayed with the same paper on all of them in the end. Yeah, maybe. And did you guys add any special specialty finishing in there? Embossing, foiling, anything like that? So the only thing that we could really afford, and even that was a stretch, but we really wanted to do it, is we we did uh, multiple covers of each issue. Cool. What was the thought behind that? Um, it was really hard in these projects. A, even you know, hundreds and hundreds of people submitted their work. So even picking 50 people just to be represented was really hard. Mm-hmm. And then pick one person to be on the cover was really hard. So we were just trying to multiply that opportunity for people. Very cool. Yeah. But you know, to your point, we didn't do anything extra special with that one, which is in hindsight, it would have been nice, but we were being pretty mindful of budget, even given that we were getting some pressure, like, Hey, you guys are spending a lot of money on a magazine. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's probably not going to come back. And we're like, well, this is the, 
you know, this is the core mission and vision for the company and the brand. So it's like, and this is how artists and creatives get exposure. So this is what we have to do. But given, given that, we couldn't push the limits as far as we wanted on that you know, I find that that exact conversation is sometimes the toughest conversation to have because when you have a, a you know a CMO or you've got a CFO who's looking at the cost of this project, they want to see a direct straight line to ROI. And in in print, in adding a foil, in adding an emboss, it's hard to draw that straight line. It's it's almost impossible, man. You can talk about it and and either people see it and get it or they don't. And, you know, sometimes it pans out and sometimes it's wasted in terms of translating into sales, you know, like definitely the foil doesn't ensure that now the mag is going to sell 10, 20, 25 percent better by any stretch of the imagination. So or the book or what have you. Um, but in a lot of cases, those kind of eye-catching hits are what do turn little projects into big successes. Yeah, and the way that I usually explain that is like, how do you want this to be perceived? Do you want somebody to receive this and go, oh, this is really cool. And then the next level is, and oh my God, there's foil here too. Like, do you want them to have that brand experience with your brand? Well, we run into this with business cards and letterhead all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and they're like, you know, we we often design for letterpress or high-end offset, often with a, a spot gloss or um, some sort of coating or emboss, deboss, um, you know, some sort of distinct process, particularly because our design approach tends to be pretty minimal and refined. And then they're like, oh, we love it, we love it. We show them samples and then they get the quote. And they're like, whoa, like a dollar a card or 90 cents a card or a dollar 50 a card or in some cases, two dollars a card. Right. And most of the time when we're doing print projects like this. These are people with pretty deep pockets. They just don't see the value in spending that when they break. Like when you said, when they go from point A to point B and they're like, holy shit, two dollars a business card. And so the way we flip that is like if I'm going to meet you, Dave, for the first time and I'm trying to conduct business with you, and I think I'm a high-integrity person with some specialty niche business with really deep, rich, committed values, and I give you a, frankly, shit-ass business card. Yeah, there's, there's a misalignment there. There's a big disconnect there and a clear misrepresentation. And so the way we like to look at that is what is that what is that wasted interaction worth? Is it is it worth wasting it, or should you potentially turn it into like a li- a lifelong, you know, could could be a lifelong relationship just because I gave you a business card with a whole bunch of integrity behind it, and you were like, shit, that guy's cool, that guy's serious, like I really like that. That person's thoughtful, uh, you know. That woman really considered like how this thing represents her. I'm going to give her a call and then maybe I'm going to do a thousand, two thousand, ten thousand, hundred thousand dollars worth of business with someone. So if you're afraid about spending 50 cents or an extra dollar per unit to potentially create that sort of engagement and relationship, you as a business person, brand person, representative of an organization, you're frankly missing the fucking boat. Uh And, And I mean, that's, you know, so at the end of the day, we're like, hey, 
you can do what you want, but if these are your values and these are your goals, we highly recommend you you hand someone a quality business card. Or if you're going to be sending regular handwritten notes, you make sure that that sheet is is of a semi-collectible, highly professional quality when that when that note gets written. You know, like mm-hmm. why time if the thing's just going to land in the trash? And I made a video about this um, for the Print Design Academy YouTube where I talk about you know, can you afford to really mess up that first interaction? And this goes for unboxing packaging stuff. This goes for like packaging retail on the shelf. If you have a cosmetic listed for 50 bucks on the shelf, like that's a pretty high price point. So you go in and you, as a consumer, you pick up that box. If that box is almost collapsing on itself because the paper select is so light and there's nothing tactile there, there's nothing to really make you feel and perceive luxury or high end whether that's paper thickness or a soft touch laminate, you're likely just going to put that back. Yeah, with, with product packaging, it's even it's even more important, or at least equally important. Yeah, equally important to those interactions. And the example I used is, you know, going to a Chamber of Commerce event, and, you know, you've got a guy walking around, and he's handing out business cards saying hello, greeting people, and then you hold this card, and you're like, dude, you printed these at home. Yeah, right. right. It immediately, you know, even if you had a great conversation, it, it, it feels like it lowers the perceived value of the offer, the exchange. That's right. And so when we communicate that, like, what's this interaction worth to you? Most folks get it and they're usually willing to spend more and, and some just don't get it. They uh-huh. just clearly devalue that point of engagement. And I guess that's their right, but it seems silly to us. Definitely. So, uh, so back on this, not for print magazine, we've talked paper, we've talked, you know, some, um, how you switched up the covers. We talked a little bit about the quantity and file setup stuff and the back and forth with that. Um, one thing I find interesting when, when planning these projects and magazine projects with people is, you know, there's the design cost, there's the print cost, and they almost think that that's it. But then I remind them, oh yes, but then you have to send this to people. So what was the what was the distribution for this? How did you decide that? And and what did what did the distribution cost for this? Yeah, well, we had Hemlock. Fortunately, part of the reason we teamed up with Hemlock wasn't just the caliber of printing, but they have distribution. A yeah, they less so distrib- I guess distribution. They just have a fulfillment arm, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, let me look. I'll 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 find it for you. But you know, fulfillment, storage, and shipping gets it gets expensive and so that was uh that was a critical component of this one i'm trying to figure out what the uh, give me a second and oh, maybe yeah. steal something towards lucian and i'll figure out what fulfillment costs just to share some context mm-hmm. so so let's talk about how this one was received when this is arriving um well first even how did you decide who you were going to send this to and, and what was the reception of this piece when they received it? Well, it, it was uh, items for sale primarily. Got it. Um, but another interesting part about doing a piece that includes so many artists is we also want to provide them one for free because mm-hmm. they're worth it. Um, so taking that into account in terms of expense, like there's 50 50 issues that we're giving away off the top. 
definitely something to consider. Um, but it, yeah, it came in. We we actually played with a few different packaging options. I believe we ended up in the it was sort of a craft. Um, an envelope, but not just a flat. It had a bit of. It kind of had like a like gussets around the edges of it. Yeah, exactly to help protect the corners, because uh, we actually had a few that the corners got damaged. So we worked with them, and I do want to give a shout out to JP at Hemlock because that's who we worked with through all the three of these projects, and he was awesome. Awesome. That's awesome. So did you guys sell out? The, so your, your goal was to obviously sell these pieces and <clears throat> to cover the cost of the print and at least break even on the project? I think we got close. I'm not sure we broke even, but it was it was pretty close on, on both. I think uh, I think both not for print runs were 500. I think underscore was 250. Um, and yeah, the other thing is like when you print stuff, you got to be good at distributing it and selling it if you want to get your money back. Right. Um, part of our challenge when we design things like this, like we were psyched to sell it, but we were far more excited to make it and get it back to the artists. You know, we want, we wanted to sell it more for the sake of distributing other folks work and ideas than these numbers didn't even factor into our business model, you know? Um, I mean, at their scale, they were so small, but, uh, it was still a lot of money to spend on a print project, but I think we got close. I don't think we broke even though, frankly. Mm -hmm. So how long did this thing take from idea to holding finished copies in your hand? What kind of time frame is that? The first issue, I mean, many, many months because just the way this project worked we conceived it and then presented to the community i think we gave everyone a month to submit and i think we had maybe a month or so to do the curation and then collecting final files from people like trying to get high-res files a lot of the layout decisions actually were determined by the final size that some of the files (laughs) came through at yeah, I can see that. We want to go as high res as possible, so it's just got to be a little bit smaller. So send us two more, and we'll make sort of a composition here. Um, so, yeah, more shout outs to Amber and some other people on the Ello side that help corral all these files. It was definitely a big effort, and having, you know, we had people lined up where if we couldn't get final files from some people we're gonna have to swap people in i don't think that actually happened for anyone but yeah you've got to plan and prepare for that yeah and then in terms of actual production with hemlock i think that was all pretty quick maybe maybe another month or so so yeah, overall, I mean, it probably took six months total to create the first issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could go a little bit faster on the second one because we had a bit of the infrastructure in place. And then, you know, we made a new publication with a whole new concept and so sort of started over. <laughs> kind of start over. Yeah. Todd, yeah, you- and then getting into like, 
you know, fulfillment, right? So there was like a $500 system integration fee to get everything into Hemlock's uh, <clears throat> Shopify shipping dashboard. And then there was 25 bucks per pallet, uh, 40 by 48 by 38 high storage fee. And then when we were sending them individually, you had to package these things, uh, which added roughly another dollar, dollar fifty to the item. So, you know, the costs increase sort of exponentially when it comes to storage, fulfillment, shipping, et cetera. Um, and then you got to think about, you know, you've got a magazine that costs you, say, 11 bucks to print, save and 10, and then you add roughly three for fulfillment or for storage, fulfillment, and packaging. So now you're at 13, um, 14, 10 or 11 bucks, and then you got to ship these things. Um, and depending upon where they're going in the world, they're anywhere from like $2.80 to you know, um, let's see, you know, $20 if they're going so, to Yeah, you could easily be in double digits if you're international. Yeah, yeah. And then if you're like, you know, sending a copy to Asia, I mean, ten a, a, a box of 10 to certain parts of Asia was 100 bucks yeah. in, in shipping. You know, um, let alone uh, there was additional packaging fees for packaging a box of 10. So, yeah, that stuff gets expensive. But then a lot of folks, we did ship a lot of these to cool little design shops where they they kind of sold them for exorbitant fees. But in the right context, uh, you know, people bought them because they got the whole idea. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So that was a great project. I'm glad we were able to dive deep into that one, you know, cover the costs and things like that. Um now, moving on here, what, what advice would you guys give designers who are new to print or haven't really played in the print arena but want to get into that, want to start? What advice do you give them? Well, obviously, you know, checking out podcasts like yours and resources like those you put out, I think today is like, you know, listen, watch, and learn. Even though you might not learn everything by listening and watching, you'll begin to create some contextual understanding of how this process works and like uh -huh. those resources certainly didn't exist when we got started printing um but aside from all that stuff which was worth its weight in gold is you just got to get your hands dirty and print some shit <laughs> I love uh, that. super straightforward i mean that's the only way to get good at anything like you gotta you gotta be on press you've got to print using different technology, different output techniques on different mediums to begin to understand how <clears throat> images transfer, how, how inks lay down on certain papers, on certain media, um, what the limitations are, et cetera. It's just a, it's just a thing you got to do if you want to get into it. I mean, I guess another interim step is like send off some digital stuff to inexpensive offset printers and see what you get back, you know, like mitigate, mitigate your risk and you'll you'll learn a little bit like that but until you get on press with with real, real pros your learning is going to be somewhat limited your your tactile hands-on uh real experiential learning print some stuff yeah print some stuff for sure 
Guys, this has been awesome. I want to wrap this one up and end with this one with the ask the audience question. This is where, you know, we've got this audience of graphic designers who are excited to learn and hear about print. Um, what do you want to ask those, those people, that younger group of designers who want to get into print? What do you want to ask them? Lucian, do you have anything other than that question I proposed? I was going to say, I'm not sure our question actually in that context relates. Well, well, the question we did have was sort of, and something we talk about a ton, is just digital printing and the value. Is it collectible? Just where, you know, where, what is digital printing's place in the world? Um, how can it be pushed further? We personally have played with, you know, digital printing, but then making it a one-off. So sort of juxtaposing the idea of it's ready-made, but we're only going to make one of them. So now it's limited again. And usually in the context of high-end jaclays on, on big, expensive inkjets. But yeah, the question was like, like who really wants a digital print? And I get it that <laughs> in, in a compressed economic uh, in the compressed economic situation we are globally and all these young people like in the age of Instagram looking at everyone designs posters, right? Like the hottest thing in sort of the, the mimetic design world on Instagram is the design posters. 99.5% of people that make those posters have never printed one for real. Maybe 0.5% of those folks have sent one off to be digitally printed but you know i'm 45 man i don't want a digital print no by anyone even an artist i really like like i want a litho i want a screen print i'll take an offset print to a lesser degree now if you want to print something digitally and then paint on it or screen print on it or use digital as a tool to create something new and unique and interesting great but uh, I'm just blown away at how many designers are so effective selling digital prints. It just makes me feel like stodgy and old. And, and I get it. Like, it's cool to buy a $20 print that looks good, but it, it just goes against our whole printing philosophy, which is like, don't make ephemeral shit, make shit that lasts. And, you know, so, so yeah, digital prints. So, right? So what I'm hearing you guys ask, and this leads to another thing that I definitely believe and agree with in thought. Um, but first, the question I'm hearing you, you ask really is, do you think digital print has the same value or is valued by creatives? Yeah, and I think, I think the answer is, is yes. But to me, it's more like, why? And is it only because you don't understand much about print yeah and and when i'm thinking because about I, if you did you wouldn't necessarily want that digital print you'd hold yeah. out for screen print or a litho or, or something produced in a more artisanal lasting fashion yeah and the way that i i sort of view this is you know the and back to our conversation earlier about print there's something but just you know in awesome about print because there's a little bit of risk involved the higher that risk is the more the cost you know the higher the cost barrier the more valuable it it feels and it becomes yeah we're, we're working on some solid color field prints right now large prints we've been doing some conceptual testing and like it's about the texture the alignment 
all these nuances, right? That how the ink sits on the paper, the discrepancy between where the paper and the ink hit and, and how dialed the alignment is relative to that sheet and how bold the color is and what happens to the color now that the ink has been absorbed to the paper and it's sitting on the paper and do you need to pull it again or, or do a double or triple print to, to get the uh, hue and the saturation right. And like all that shit's lost in a, in a digital print. Um, but they look, they look nice if, if, if you're not paying attention to those details. So um, I guess being minimalist and interested in the sort of refined thought and practice required to make high quality minimal things. And there's so much interest in minimalism in graphic design today, but like minimalism produced in a digital context is most often wasted, at least to us. Yep. Um, so, so yeah. Um, why, how do you value digital prints and, and have you, uh, thought about digital prints in the context of uh, traditional printing. You know, and the other thing, you know, and this happens to everyone, right, as they get older, but, like, we don't want these technologies to get lost. Like, there's very few living master lithographers left in the world. Um, uh, Bud Shark, the master printer that we work with in Lyons, Colorado, that runs a, a studio called Sharks, Inc., where... He collaborates explicitly with artists on limited edition prints. In most contexts, most cases, the artists come, live with him and his wife, Barbara, at their house and studio. They make the prints together, handle all the proofing. The artist leaves, and then Bud finishes the edition, ships the prints to the artist to be signed, and then his studio handles distribution. He's going to have to retire at some point, eventually, and he doesn't have anyone to carry on his legacy. I don't think his current apprentice assistant evan uh colbert who's amazing colbert excuse me who's an amazing uh printer himself uh -huh. i don't think he wants to commit to following in, in bud's footsteps so just the idea of like if we don't support these practices and value these practices that make beauty it's not just because they're old that they're cool beautiful things come out of some of these practices if everyone all of a sudden just wants digital shit it's it's the trend the whole world's going on like faster cheaper this commoditizes everything yeah lower quality lower quality things so um we like to slow down and 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 do things in a in a more thoughtful considered manner and ultimately yield a better final product guys this has just been awesome i've just been engrossed in this conversation um I got to put a finish on it, but I first want to say thank you guys so much for coming on the show, dropping this knowledge. And I know I've seen the awesome work that you guys are putting together and it's just an absolute pleasure getting to chat with you more. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for having us. It's always cool to talk to you, man. We love what you're doing. All right. All right. I told you that was going to be an awesome one, man. I love talking to these guys. Um, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Again, if you want to learn more about the business of print design for your freelance side hustle, your freelance career, your, your design business, and how to increase the revenue with print design, head over to printdesignacademy.com and pick up that free guide there, the top three ways you could do that. And if you're digging what you're hearing on the print design podcast here, head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Spotify, wherever you're listening to this and leave a rating or a review or rating and a review. Why not? Shoot for the moon. And uh, I love it. 
That'd be amazing. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks and have a great day. See you next week.